Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kepler. And this is episode 34 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 23rd of September. And Leon, uh, this week we're talking to Professor Ian Everall, who's an expert in uh, psychology and very interested in Chinese psychologies. Uh, And then to economist Shane Oliver, I believe. That's right. Now, uh, Ian, Ian Everill is the head of psychiatry at the University of Melbourne, uh, Professor Ian Everill, and he's talking about the training work in mental health that the Australia-Asian Mental Health or um, AsiaLink are doing in China. That We're looking at the implications for the mental health industry everywhere for it. So that's going to be fascinating. It will indeed. You know, and you have to remember that in lots of places, the suicide rate in China is really quite high. That's right. That's right. And uh, that has lots of implications here, of course, because mental health is a big, big issue challenging economies everywhere. And then we're going to have a chat with AME, AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. And we're going to be talking to us all about the uh, Shane Oliver, all about what's happened with the Bank of Japan and uh, the Fed, which uh, this morning kept rates on hold and or the implications for the RBA. Yeah, indeed, which looks as though it's uh, going to hold them as well. So anyway, uh, first of all, have a chat with Professor Ian Everall. Professor Ian Everall, tell us about the work that you're doing in China with AsiaLink in the area of mental health. It's intriguing. Thank you. As China has been changing rapidly and there is the uh, development of a middle class and uh, as people are becoming more literate about mental health problems, there is the increasing demand for mental health services. And we are working with our colleagues in China in in order to help them uh, deliver those services. We started off this um, partnership 20 years ago with the Peking University Institute of Mental Health. And in the early 2000s, we helped them move from an asylum-based psychiatric service to community mental health services, which now cover over a billion people across China. And we are providing training in psychiatry services, and we're now talking uh, with some of our colleagues about even providing training for private psychiatric services as well. What is the level of uh, psychiatric services in China? Uh, I think it's still fairly rudimentary, and uh, the government realises that there are not enough mental health uh, professionals to service the demand, the growing demand. So at present, there are about 20,000 psychiatrists across the whole of China, which is not very much for a population of, I think, 1.4 billion people. Now. And uh, so last year, the Chinese government uh, announced that uh, mental health is a priority and that they are putting funding in to train an extra 20,000 new psychiatrists by 2020. How did they get onto you and AsiaLink? I mean, what, what, was, what was the connection? Us and a, uh, the development of the relationship between ourselves and AsiaLink came uh, personally through the director of the Institute of Mental Health at Peking University, Professor Yu Shin. He's an old-age psychiatrist by training, and in 1996, he came to visit our then-professor of old-age psychiatry, Ed Chu, in order to get some training in child psychiatry, in, in adult uh, old-age psychiatry, and the relationship grew from there. And it was cemented when uh, the Peking University was given money by the Chinese government to establish community mental health services across China, and he chose us as the partner because he'd seen the community mental health services we have already established here in Melbourne and wanted assistance in trying to replicate that model across China. So they were quite impressed by what they saw here. 
They were very impressed. But as it was made clear to them, no service is perfect. And also we had to work closely with them on adapting our services so they were culturally appropriate across China. And together with partner with the Chinese University of Hong Kong, we provided a train-the-trainer model so they could roll out community mental health services across the Chinese cities. And I say it's been very successful and they have services that cover over a billion people. Cultural issues are very important. Uh, any Australian business doing working in China has found that. What are the cultural issues that you have found? The most important cultural issue that we found is actually de- is developing a partnership with trust and also accepting we need to learn from our colleagues in China about cultural differences in attitudes to illness and how uh, the cultural differences may shape the presentation of those illnesses. What we have here in the West isn't necessarily directly transferable to the Chinese uh, uh, situation. We have to learn from our colleagues about how we adapt it so it's acceptable there. And stigma is also a big issue there as well. How's that managed? So um, with the rolling out of the community mental health services, the so-called 686 project, they came across 3,000 people who were basically imprisoned. These were people who had no access to services, who were mentally ill, and the way their families coped with them was to either uh, lock them in their room or shackle them in some way. And as these services were developed, the clinicians worked with the families to free those people, admit them to hospital, treat them, and then rehabilitate them back to their community. And so I think that also then led to a discussion with family affected families about stigma and that this was an illness and tried to destigmatize the presentation of that illness. Do you think the changes in China, particularly in, in what we'd now call the middle class, is causing stress and does that come within your purview? I think that the change in China, especially the, the rise of the middle class as uh, educated people has made them more aware of mental health problems and mental illness. So mental health problems uh, cover the high prevalence disorders such as anxiety, stress, depression, whereas mental illness is the severe depression and uh, psychotic illnesses such as schizophrenia. So it is the awareness of mental health problems that I think is now driving the demand for services. And a lot of those who are educated and uh, have money often go over to Hong Kong for those services because they haven't, haven't yet seen equivalent services being developed across mainland China. Is the stigma in these areas about somebody who would be perceptibly disturbed? The stigma still there, as the stigma still here in Australia. And I think that the more that people talk about their experience of mental health problems, the more we destigmatize uh, these uh, experiences. And that may also be part, one of the reasons for driving people to go to places like Hong Kong because it's away from their own country. The Chinese economy is changing massively. It's moving away from production of becoming the world's factory, and it's moving more into services and uh, this presents enormous opportunities for Australian companies. I'd imagine what you're presenting here would be enormous opportunities for Australian health companies. This provides two sets of really important opportunities. One for Australian health companies to actually provide our established models of care, especially in the private sector, that could be transposed into uh, China. But also it provides opportunities for universities and higher education sectors to provide uh, training and courses that could be uh, uh, provided in China. Or mixed courses where people start some of that uh, training off, say a master's course in China, but spend some time here and then go back to China to complete their qualifications. Based on what you're saying about the need for trust, uh, there would be a need for partnerships Yes, and uh, to, to, to develop that trust, wouldn't it? That's why um, we think it's been very important that we've worked for our colleagues for getting on for 20 years because that trust is there and we're often, uh, I think, preferred in terms of coming to us for advice about how you set these things up, whether it's private healthcare facilities or providing training or research collaboration. The 20-year issue mm. is quite important, isn't it? Because, I mean, you've given it time yeah. and so... That- that would be telling 
Australian businesses, they actually need to be patient and to give things time. It's not going to happen overnight. I think rare for things to happen overnight. Our experience is it takes a lot of time to develop those relationships. Also takes an ability to tolerate the fact that things can change quite quickly. And uh, often people in positions of authority maybe move to other positions. And so you have to keep on recreating the uh, trust and the relationships of people. But I think if you do have that persistence, as we have, then opportunities do stop uh, presenting themselves. It's interesting that they are so receptive of Western expertise in this area. Is that new in, in China? Because often you, you had them turning their back a bit on, on our sort of medicine mm. and our sort of treatment. Um, where are they at at the moment in terms of the development of treatment, hospitals and this sort of thing? So I can only give you my personal experience, um, which is... I think you're absolutely right. In the past, they did uh, turn their back upon Western ways of doing things. But And and I think a lot of that's uh, from my conversations with Julia and Chi Ing, who's uh, another colleague and professor in the department. I think a lot of that turning the back occurred during the Cultural Revolution, when uh, a lot of uh, the established services uh, were basically dismantled. And I think then when they experienced the SARS epidemic, the government realized that there was no public health system. There was very little in terms of a mental health system. And I think they realized they had to start recreating these things. And that's when the request for um, assistance from outside started happening. And that's where we started uh, being invited to help them establish these community mental health services across China. So I think maybe the attitude and the view about the Western world has changed over the decades. Are there issues with language? Yes. Uh, Things can often get lost in translation. And uh, we are very fortunate in that we have a China projects manager based full-time in this department, born and brought up in Beijing, who's fluent both in English and uh, Mandarin. And um, she's also a very trusted member of the team, trusted by our colleagues in China and certainly assist in making sure that uh, the translations happen. Uh, again, with the three-day training, uh, we, the training uh, was translated simultaneously. We had a group of young doctors and clinicians in the room who were fluent both in English and Mandarin who, after we said uh, a few words, would then translate that. And we've got into the habit of doing these things. So we can do these simultaneous translations, both English and Mandarin. Is there a difference in attitude towards this sort of treatment between older people and the young technician technocrats that China's developing? I imagine that there is. When you go into Chinese hospitals, there are two pharmacies. There's the pharmacy stocking medication that you and I will be familiar with, and then there's the traditional Chinese medicine pharmacy. And we know that there are some traditional Chinese medicines which are used for certain mental health disorders. And I'm sure that the acceptance of both uh, Western and Chinese medicine may vary uh, according to people's age. Yeah, it's all... Totally fascinating. If you're a Chinese, it would be a revolution going on in in many ways, wouldn't it, in what's happening there? I think there is a revolution going on. I think that uh, the pace of change in Chinese society is astounding. And the exposure to Western influences such as TV uh, is indicative of that. And I think that often parents or grandparents are a bit bewildered by the behavior of their young children who are influenced by the experiences from Western TV and Western influences. Last question. Is Australia singularly equipped to do this sort of connection with the Chinese? Because we've got a growing Chinese population, growing Asian population, and we're learning as well, aren't we? 
certainly learning and we certainly learn all the time when we interact with our partners in China and our colleagues there. I think that Australia is in a great position to um, take advantage of these opportunities because the Australian government realises the importance of interaction with the Chinese and we're also in a very uh, similar time zone. Uh, I have European colleagues that also want to work in China but we're much more closely aligned because in our time zone and the growing China, uh, Asian population present in China in Australia. Professor Everall, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for uh, interviewing me. Well, I found that totally fascinating, uh, Leon. You know, it's uh, having lived in Asia for uh, quite a long time, the approach to mental health and whatnot is quite different from here. I, indeed, it is. Indeed, it is. And it's been, it was a fascinating, fascinating chat and uh, really, really worth listening to again and again. Okay, now Shane Oliver and what's going on in the economy? Shane, although the indications are that the Fed will not raise interest rates this week and the market seems to be pricing that in, um, what's your take on it? Do you think the Fed will raise rates eventually? I think the Fed will raise rates this year, but as we've seen for the last few years now, it's going to be a very gradual and cautious approach. Um, there has been some debate and market nervousness about when the Fed will, will next raise rates. Obviously, the Fed was getting a little bit concerned that the market was just so relaxed about what the Fed might do. And uh, there has been some Fed officials, usually regional presidents and so on, out there sort of saying that maybe there's a case for a rate hike sooner rather than later. And on top of that, though, we've seen some mixed economic data. So that combination of hawkish comments from the Fed and mixed economic data had got the market nervous about what the Fed might do. Maybe they'll make a policy mistake in raising rates too soon. But recently, I think the continued mixed economic data, combined with the fact that uh, some of the doves at the Fed have remained dovish, leads me to the conclusion that they'll probably leave interest rates on hold at this meeting. It might be what you call a hawkish hold, though. In other words, they'll, they'll leave the door open to a, uh, an expectation that they will, will raise rates by year end. So my feeling is on holds at the September meeting, but on track likely for a hike in December at their December meeting. Certainly the different comments you've got coming in. You've got Rosengren saying one thing, you've got Brainard saying something else. Uh, that would indicate, wouldn't it, that uh, there's going to be a lot, a lot of division, certainly some dissenting reports uh, when the Fed actually issues its statement this week. I think that's right. I think there's a bunch of hawks at the Feds who are quite itchy to start raising or to continue raising rates, um, the argument being that the unemployment rate is close to being consistent with full employment and that inflation is close to the target of 2%. So if you look at the uh, the CPI that came out on Friday, it showed core inflation at 2.3%, whereas if you look at the, uh, the private consumption deflator, which the Fed prefers to focus on, the core measure of the private consumption deflator shows inflation at 1.5, 1.6. So whatever it is, you take an average of those two, you're around 2%. So... Uh, that, that's the hawk's argument. The doves, you know, Brainard and others would, would say, well, that's uh, all well and true, but the main inflation indicator we focus on is still stuck below the target at 1.6, 1.7, depending on which uh, month you look at it, still still below target. And the recent economic data, retail sales, the so-called ISM business surveys have all been on the soft side. And I guess there's still uncertainty about the global economy and the, the worries about the uh, the Fed raising interest rates causing upwards pressure on the value of the US dollar, resulting in a much greater de facto monetary tightening. I think Rosengren was the one that got the uh, the market most worried. He uh, spoke Friday, a week ago now, 
and uh, he was perceived to be a dove, but he sort of came in the camp saying that uh, there's a case to continue raising interest rates, otherwise there'd be a build-up of imbalances in the economy. I sort of interpreted his comments as sort of not necessarily being consistent with September being on hold. Um, he, he wasn't arguing for an imminent uh, hike, so you could still argue his view was still consistent with a December hike. Um, one thing I would say, though, is that all these officials coming out of the Fed with different views um, does lead to a lot of confusion on the part of investors, and it's probably a bit over the top. I think we've gone from a, a point where there perhaps wasn't enough transparency at the Fed, say, a few decades ago, to now a point where there's too much transparency. It would be like the board of a major Australian company, um, each of the individuals on the board coming out prior to the, uh, the next month's meeting and saying whatever they think the company should do, and that can lead to a lot of confusion on the part of investors. And we're maybe seeing the same thing in relation to the Fed, that it's just become a cacophony as opposed to a uh, transparency. Now, if, if the Fed does raise interest rates, it surely it would have to be in December because we have a little matter of the US presidential election in November. Yeah, the Fed's never going to say it that way. <laughs> that they will, uh, they'll probably always say something along the lines of that uh, if they feel the need to do something, then regardless of whether there's an election campaign on or not, they'll do it. I think privately the Fed would probably prefer not to do anything that causes any upset between now and the December election such that they'd be seen as you know, taking the blame by one side of politics or the other in terms of the final outcome. And I think if you dig down privately again, probably the case that the uh, most of the board members would prefer a continuation of the current approach to uh, economic policy in the US, which is more likely under a Democrat than under, under Trump. Um, of course, none of them are going to admit that one, though. But I think those arguments still suggest that, you know, if there's any doubt in their minds that they probably prefer to wait till December when it's well and truly after the election rather than do it now. What's your take on the Bank of Japan, which is, happens to be meeting a few hours before the Fed? Well, the Bank of Japan's another interesting one. Uh, the Bank of Japan has set itself an inflation target. Government in Japan has growth targets. None of those are being met, and that don't look like they're going to be met anytime soon. Um, so, therefore, the market has been sort of of the view that the BOJ needs to do more. And, of course, the last few meetings, the uh, the market has been disappointed. There was a few crumbs thrown off the table at the last meeting regarding ETFs and a few odds and ends, but nothing substantive. And in the meantime, the, uh, the Bank of Japan said that they, they're undertaking a comprehensive review, the results of which will be unveiled at this meeting this week. So I think what we'll see from the Bank of Japan is probably... Uh, a conclusion from that comprehensive review that the policy approach that they've been using has worked. Um, I suspect that they're sort of transitioning away from coming up with a precise date as to when they'll get that 2% target. I think they're probably going to position it as a longer-term goal as opposed to um, a shorter-term goal. Um, they're probably also going to continue to do things which look like they're steepening the yield curve. Um, so less buying of bonds at the long end, more buying at the, at the shorter end um, on the grounds that a steeper yield curve might help banks, um, but they might also do something in terms of further lowering their negative deposit rate, which I think would be a mistake. I think the negative rates have, have not helped anyone and just been more of a mistake than anything else. But the indications, that the, sort of the noise around suggests that they're probably heading down that path. But I, but I don't think we're going to see anything substantive from the BOJ I think if Japan is going to do anything substantive, it's probably along the lines of helicopter money. In other words, with the BOJ directly in one form or another finances public sector spending, then they would get more bang for the buck. Um, when you do quantitative easing, there's no guarantee that 
that whoever you've swapped the, the cash for the asset for, that, that the person who gets the cash will actually go and spend it. Whereas in the case of uh, helicopter money, you at least get more guarantees that you'll have a bigger bang for the buck in terms of economic impact. And at the same time, um, you can't do much fiscal expansion without doing something to reduce the level of public debt or at least not add to it, whereas the BOJ, by doing helicopter money, could do that. So, But I, but I don't think that the Japanese government and the BOJ are at that point yet. So I, I expect a, a sort of a fairly disappointing outcome from this meeting, um, not a lot of big changes um, to be announced. Now, the other central bank, of course, is the Reserve Bank of Australia, and uh, yesterday it was confirmed that uh, they will stick to their 2 to 3% uh, inflation target. Yeah, I thought it was good that they'd sort of ratified that and they did it fairly quickly. This is the uh, the Treasurer and the new Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, have exchanged you know, a, a statement on the conduct of monetary policy and they ratified the 2 to 3% inflation target. They did make a couple of changes which were worth mentioning. Uh, one was that they, you know, the previous wording was something to the effect that the 2 to 3% inflation target would be met over the course of the economic cycle. That's now being replaced with over time and do that in a way which is consistent with financial stability, amongst other things. So there's a bit more flexibility from the, on the part of the Reserve Bank in terms of getting back to within target if they've gone away from it. So that could be interpreted at the moment as saying that uh, with inflation well below target, that providing the Reserve Bank's confident that they'll get back within a reasonable time frame, um, that it might take pressure off them to ease further. The other thing they did, though, was sort of a reference to the Reserve Bank managing expectations. And presumably that's about maintaining uh, expectations that inflation will stay within the 2 to 3% range. And you could argue that that points in the other direction. If you're going to manage expectations that inflation will will uh, gravitate towards 2 to 3%, then, of course, you need to be seen to be doing things that will head us in that direction, which is actually an argument for more easing. So you could argue in the great scheme of things, there's not a lot of implications coming from the revised statement on the conduct of monetary policy for near-term monetary policy. But I think the key was this this ratification that the 2 to 3% inflation target remains. Some were arguing for lower target. To me, that always struck me as ridiculous. It's like moving the goalposts. Whenever you're not achieving your goal, just move the goalposts. Um, but I think what they've come up with makes sense. Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, Gary, the big story for the week was what's happening with the central banks, and uh, that's quite important. Yeah, um, we all hang on them, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah. So, well done, and uh, now the news. Well, Gary, first of all, China is shaping up as favourite to fall victim to a major banking crisis, according to a dire and frightening warning from the Bank for International Settlements. And the scale of China's debt is enough to create major market shock around the world. Such an event would put Australia's economy directly in the firing line. Now, the Bank for International Settlements says in its latest quarterly report that the measure of China's risk can be found in its credit for GDP gap, which is now sitting at 30. That's three times the danger level, and that score is well in excess of any other major country, and it's above the level in the US leading into the global financial crisis, and in Asia at the times of its late 1990s debt bubble. And China's total debt, according to the Bank for International Settlements, is the equivalent of 255% of GDP. And uh, while this is big, it's also comparable to the UK and Europe. So that's actually quite important. Yeah, and one of the mysterious things, of course, is, is 255% of GDP the actual debt, or is it, because of shadow banking, very much higher? 
Well, that is a very big question, yes. I don't know whether the Bank for International Settlements was taking that shadow debt into account, and if they weren't, it's very, very, very dangerous, Gary. It is, yeah, particularly for us as it happens. Yes, yes. Now, uh, the global economy is stuck in a low growth trap and will continue to splutter in 2017, according to the Organisation for Economic Cooperation Development. And the OECD's interim economic outlook also gets stuck into the central banks and warns distortions caused by ultra-low interest rates are raising risks. And the OECD forecasts of global growth have been cut to 2.9% this year and 3.2% next year. And these forecasts are 0.1% below the levels of three months ago. The OECD warnings comes at a time when central banks around the world, the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Banks, are trying to kickstart their economies with interest rate policies. And the Bank of Japan yesterday changed its policy. It's keeping interest rates at minus 0.1%, but setting the country's 10-year interest rates as a new target for the world's third largest economy. And it said it would continue to buy assets such as government bonds at the rate of 80 trillion yen. That's about uh, 1.037 trillion Aussie a year to ensure that the yield on 10-year bonds is zero. The US Fed actually kept rates on hold this morning. I watched it at four o'clock this morning. They have uh, policymakers saying there'll be one other rate hike. I would assume that's going to be in December after the US elections. But the OECD said low and negative interest rates were distorting the market by pumping up asset prices, holding back growth. And I think that's right, Gary. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And all a bit worrying. Well, I think, look, Gary, I think what's happening in politics now where you have people voting for Brexit, people flocking to Donald Trump, is because of the central banks. They've kept interest rates really low and that has boosted stock markets everywhere. Companies have been taking out loans on these low interest rates and by doing share buybacks, which has boosted share prices instead of building their companies and creating jobs. And as a result, we have a soaring share market and no growth in the real economy. And people are really, really angry and uh, they're flocking to uh, political outsiders yeah. as a result. They're taking it out on the police, that's right. Yeah, I blame the central banks completely. So I think the OECD has a good point. Now, uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has told US congressional leaders and policymakers this week that commerce and trade are as powerful as ships and planes when it comes to exerting influence in the Asia-Pacific and is seeking to breathe life in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Mr. Turnbull, who's spending the week in New York and then Washington, is exerting whatever influence he can to try to influence both parties to drop the resistance to the TPP. And both presidential candidates have pledged not to ratify the 12-nation regional free trade pact, if elected, which will scuttle it. And uh, Mr. Turnbull has scheduled meetings with congressional leaders from both parties this week. The TTP, the TPP rather, is um, pretty much on the nose in the United States. And I think a lot of free trade deals, are, because of imbalance and whatnot, but is, including one that Australia's got with Japan, make people sceptical about the birth of them. That's right. That's right. I think they're going to they're meeting a lot of lot of resistance in Congress. And, and of course, you've got Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are opposed to it as well. Well, that's right. And that doesn't count the beef producers in Texas. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, the Treasurer, Scott Morrison, has forced foreign Foreign investors sell another 16 properties worth over 14 billion because they've been illegally purchased. Mr. Morrison said investors had either not received foreign investment review board approval or their circumstances have changed. And the 16 properties were purchased in Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, West Australia with prices ranging from approximately $200,000 to $2 million. And the individuals involved came from a range of countries that include the UK, Malaysia, China and Canada. And the coalition government is forced to 
foreign nationals to divest a total of 46 properties, totaling 92 million. Now, illegal real estate purchases by foreign citizens can attract criminal penalties of uh, up to $135,000 or three years imprisonment or both for individuals and up to $675,000 for companies. Now, uh, the Reserve Bank is sticking to its long-standing 2 to 3% inflation target band under new Governor Philip Lowe. Dr. Lowe took over from Glenn Stevens, who retired at the weekend after 10 years in the top central bank role. And on Monday, he agreed to a new memorandum of understanding with the Treasurer Scott Morrison related to the bank's policy operations. And so they're going to stick to a, an inflation target of 2 to 3%. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia's flagged there'll be no further rate cuts and it's not too phased about rising house prices. And this coincides with the sell-off of government bonds, signalling that rates will be on hold for a while. Now, in the minutes of Glenn Stevens' final meeting as RBA Governor released this week, the RBA said the recent rate cuts seem to have an impact. Now, the release of the minutes coincided with the ABS figures showing property prices across Australia's eight capital cities were 4.1% higher at the end of June than a year before, and the average house price across Australia's capital cities rose 2% in three months through to June compared to the previous quarter. And while this came after six months of fall, the RBA said the evidence suggested house prices were moderating. At the same time, Gary, uh, business confidence has soared 15.2% going from 83 in the second quarter of 2016 to 95.6 and third, according to the Westpac Melbourne Institute SME Index. And there was a massive 18.7% jump in the future conditions with more small businesses expressing a brighter outlook. A net balance of 6.1% of SMEs have hired more staff in the last 12 months. A net balance of 14.4% of SMEs have increased investment over the same period. And the most optimistic businesses were in the hospitality and recreational services and their confidence was sitting at a mind-boggling 138.7. I think that's quite good news, actually, Gary. Considering all the gloom that's around, and I think at some points we're professional gloom spreaders, but that's really very encouraging. Now, uh, the really fascinating story for the week was a technical fault that crippled Australia's main stock exchange is shaping up as the biggest challenge yet for the boss's new boss. Less than two months into Dominic Stevens' tenure, the ASX Limited Chief Executive was forced to apologise for a hardware failure that saw the equity exchange open late and shut early on Monday in its worst such disruption in almost five years. And the ASX said the equity market opened as normal on Tuesday after brokerages and investors criticised the firm for not picking the outage sooner and giving them more details on the malfunction. And a technical problem limited trading for the day to less than three hours. Now, the issue arose from a hardware failure in the main database of the equities trading system and had a number of knock-on consequences that affected the operation of the market. And the Australian Securities Investments Commission, which regulates the nation's financial markets, is now investigating. It's not the first time this has happened, of course. Well, 2011, that went down for four hours. That's right, yeah. And of course, it came at a bad time when uh, people were trying to position themselves in anticipation of what was going to happen with the Fed and the Bank of Japan. Now, embattled law firm Slater Gordon says it's taking legal action against a UK company that sold it the disastrous Quindell professional services business that nearly put the law firm out of business last year. And in a statement to the market, Slater and Gordon said it informed Watchstone, formerly Quindell, that it intended to bring claims against it arising from the firm's purchase of Quindell's professional service division. And the lawsuit could help Slater and Gordon recover £50 million, that's 86.6 million Aussie, from Quindell's purchase price held in a scrow as a warranty in case the deal went bad. Now, the statement provided no detail about where the claims would be made. Now, we know Slater and Gordon, which is the world's only listed law firm, bought Quindell in 2015 for $1.3 billion. And following the acquisition, the UK Chancellor announced plans to tighten personal injury claims, an area which generated the bulk of Quindell's earnings. And Slater and Gordon subsequently reported a nest loss of $1.02 
billion, with most of the impairment, which is 814 million, charged against the purchase of Quindell. And a few months after the Quindell acquisition, the Serious Fraud Office launched a criminal investigation into Quindell, which had reported a 375.2 million pound loss in 2014. In addition to that, the Financial Reporting Council started probing into Quindell's current and previous auditors. And Slater and Gordon, of course, copped it bad for not doing sufficient due diligence on the purchase. You would have expected them to do it, Gary. Well, it's supposed to be a very smart law firm. What were they doing? That's right. Uh, I don't really see if they can complain if what we hear is, is correct. Absolutely. Now, uh, the Victorian government has sold the Port of Melbourne for a record nine. $0.7 billion to a consortium of four pension funds, including the Future Fund, Queensland Investment Corporation, New York-based Global Infrastructure Partners, GIP, and Canadian pension group OMAS. And that's really interesting because the Victorian government was only expecting to get $7 billion. Instead, they got $9.7 billion. Now, the Lonsdale Consortium signed a 50-year lease for the biggest container and cargo port in the country, with 10% of the lease proceeds to be invested in regional and rural infrastructure projects, totaling $970 million. And the plan is also to create a new $200 million agriculture, infrastructure and jobs fund to boost exports and support farmers. I think that's really good that the Victorian government's done that. It's amazing, actually, when you think about what the future life of the Port of Melbourne might well be because of the constriction of the bay. And the size of the ships that are coming in. Yep, they're getting bigger. The average container ship being built today is half a kilometre long. That's enormous, Gary. Absolutely huge. These overseas pension funds regard the Port of Melbourne as prime territory. Well, imagine if it was built and added into the city. I mean, it's right on the edge. That's right. Real estate is enormously valuable. Finally, Gary, the big story of the week, I thought, in terms of companies, was TPG Telecom's profit. It surged 71.6% to $384.6 million with the additions of Net's learnings because it uh, acquired Net last year. However, TPG's share price plunged 21% because Analysts downgraded the company's 2017 earnings with expectations that the MBN Co. will be charging ISPs access fees four times higher than they are now in order to cover its $40 billion in capital costs building its networks. And TPG's earnings figures, however, confirmed the strategy behind its acquisition of Perth-based Ionet for $1.4 billion last year. I would expect the deals in this market to continue in order for these providers of retail broadband services to maintain their margins. The government's in a prime position, as is Telstra, which got $11 billion for a a rather elderly copper network, uh, and TPG's the uh, the newcomer, and I think it's going to get a bit bruised. It was interesting looking at their figures. Their revenues came out to $2.4 billion, nearly double the $1.3 billion recorded last year. Earnings before interest tax depreciation were up 70, 75.3% to $849.4 million. Operating cash flow was at $759.2 million compared to $492.8 million the year before. And TPG said Ironet contributed $242.6 million in the 11 quarter months post-acquisition and TPG consumer EBITDA rose 6.7% to $255.7 million, and that division added 64,000 broadband customers in the year to finish with 885,000 of them and also provide another 304,000 mobile subscribers. Yes, it's done very well. I mean, David Teo is really a very clever man, but it also, I think, proves that price is more important to a lot of consumers than broadband speed. And that's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we're going to have a fascinating interview with Trevor Dietz from BPS PBS Technology. Yep, indeed, that'll be good. And, of course, another economist. That's right. And uh, in the meantime, you can uh, tune into us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care, and we look forward to talking to you next week.